We are continuing to do our series on Jewish history, and every week I'm doing this, I'm thinking, ah, I just, I'm being, I'm torn because I really want to be in a book of the Bible. I want to be going verse by verse and and do that again, but I also see such a value in this, and I'm not being let free to move on, and so I'm going to see this out because I think it's very important for you to understand, like I said before, why the church thinks the way they do. How did our worldview get this way? How did the Jews get to be the way the Jews are? Um, It it really is going to, I think, help put some of these pieces together and is an important foundation to understand. And so we are going to cover some history here tonight to, like like true Jewish history for you to understand. You'll just see as we get going, I guess. Um, We left off and we were talking about, um, you know, the Assyrians. We we had the Babylonians. Well, first, you know, Aram, the Assyrians came, and then the Babylonians came and took over them. And then we're going to have the Persians. The Medes and the Persians are going to take over the Babylonians. We last week looked at Babylon and saw, you know, how God's prophecy about Babylon has been fulfilled to this very day where, you know, jackals and hyenas and whatnot live there. The city's all around it, but the actual place of Babylon is still uninhabited. When the Persians came and attacked, we see, you can read in the book of Daniel how there was the handwriting on the wall, that hand that appeared, and, and Belshazzar's knees began to shake, and he turned white, and Daniel is called in to interpret the dream, and he says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting, and, and now judgment is coming this very night, you are going to you know, fall. History records that that very thing did happen, and they came in under that river that, remember I said, see that the river went right kind of by that gate there, that they stopped that river, and they went in under the gate, and that very night that they were praising God with the the temple artifacts, the cups and the goblets from the temple, those people were captured. That very night, history tells us. Well... We see around 538 B.C. is when this is happening. And then in Daniel's dreams, you're going to have like this bear, you know, and there are like two parts to it that you see. And what you're going to see, or was that the ram? I'm I'm kind of questioning my bear thing here. But whatever it was, there were two parts to it. And we see that that was because there were the Medes and the Persians. And you're going to see... Two primary figures, Darius and Cyrus. Cyrus being a little greater than Darius. Um, Cyrus is around 536 B.C. And he is the one that is going to allow the Jews to return back home. He is the one that the Bible predicted would even do that. That when they were reading the scriptures, they see in the prophet Isaiah that they would be there for 70 years and then somebody was going to let them go home. This is why we saw our modern coins when Trump was president. Israel made 
a coin where Cyrus was on one side and Trump was on the other because Trump brought back the uh, embassy to Jerusalem. Now, Isaiah 45 is where we see that Cyrus, years before he even came to power, is named in Scripture by name. And a man that didn't even know the Lord was not a Christian, was not a believer, but God will use unbelievers, he'll use a donkey, he'll use me to get truth out. Same thing as a donkey. That's right. Yep. So this is also why we see the first 39 chapters, we mentioned this before, of Isaiah are pre-exile. And a lot of judgment and, and things like that because Israel had not been following God, so God was going to bring judgment. We talked about that a week or two ago. And then from 750 to 680 B.C., much of the next 27 chapters of Isaiah are dealing with the return. And so a very different time period and something that you can look at on your own. But 536 B.C. is the first wave of exiles coming back. Just like we saw that there were waves of the exile taking place. You know, Daniel and the more noble and notable people were taken. There were three different times until finally the utter destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Likewise, they don't all get to come back at once, but there are different waves of people coming back. You read about this first wave in Ezra chapter 1. 516, you see a second wave under Joshua the high priest in Zerubbabel, and we see this in Ezra chapter 4. And like I said, I'd love to just go and dive into these verses, but we just, I won't get this done if we don't just kind of focus on the history. But it is during this second wave that you have books like Haggai and Zechariah that are being written. And so take note of that, and as you go read those short books, you can understand the history of what's going on and why they're writing what they're writing. And then about 450 B.C., quite some time later, a third wave, Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is about totaling 10% of the Jewish people who actually returned to Jerusalem, which is very sad. And I think the reason that's sad most of all is because because they stayed there, much of their culture, I mean, imagine, well, it's not hard to imagine. You live it. At least I think everybody here, you've been born in America. This is all you know. Imagine now all of a sudden God saying, all right, I'm opening the doors. You get to now go back to Jerusalem. You can go live there if you'd like. How many of you would actually quit your jobs, you know, pull up your, root up your entire life and say, okay, we're moving to Jerusalem. They're, they're going to make you citizens of Israel. You can do it. I'll bet probably only 10% of you would actually do that. Yeah. That was a joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> glad, glad to hear the joke. 
I, I can understand why they didn't, because it is all they knew. But because of this, that only 10% return, when Jesus comes, that first time, only 10% of his people are there to really understand and see and hear. And so there was a blessing that they missed because they bought into the world and they wanted to build a kingdom here. Yes, they were going to keep their faith. And I'm not saying it was sinful for them to stay necessarily. What I'm saying is, is that they had their eyes set more on what they had built here. And I think that we need to learn from that because many of us, I think probably if not all of us, may have that same attitude that we have built things here. We've got a home. We've got family. We've got vehicles. We've got, you know, toys. We've got stuff that we don't want to give up to go live a life that is fully dedicated to the Lord. So last week we were looking at 1 Corinthians 7 in another Bible study, and we were talking about that, how... In essence, Jesus says many times in many different ways throughout the New Testament. He says, you know, I do not my will, but only the will of my Father who sent me. The things I do, I only do that which I hear my Father tell me to do. And to have a desire in our heart that we would say that, I don't care about my career. I don't care about my plans that I have. All I care about is to listen and do the will of my Father. And what's the will of my Father? The scriptures tell us. Go and make disciples of all nations. Obey Him. I mean, that's pretty much sums up the will of the Father for you. But how many of us are willing to give up everything to follow the will of our Father rather than hang on to the kingdom we're building here? But this was why, and still is, why we do not have all the Jews in Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout the world. Not only did the Assyrians scatter and they became Samaritans and kind of lost tribes, but even those of the two tribes, primarily, many of them still stayed in Persia, in, in the areas of Babylon, because it's all they knew. Honestly, I think that is why so many people in modern-day Christianity have a hard time following the biblical festivals. Because all they know is what they've done since they were born. And it means giving up maybe some family traditions. It doesn't mean giving up God by any means. As a matter of fact, I believe God is magnified in it. But can you see how we're hanging on to what we know? That Babylon inside of us. And that's just an example. There are many other things that maybe is part of Babylon in us that we just don't want to let go. I think the Lord wanted the Jews to go back to, to Jerusalem 
Because remember why God called them to go to Jerusalem to begin with. What was it? We talked about this weeks ago. Right in the middle of Everybody's going to go through them, so everybody's going to hear about the God of Israel. You know the Great Commission, we act as if that's some great new thing from the New Testament. (laughs) That was his plan from the very beginning, that God would get the glory. It wasn't about the Jews any more than it's about you. It's about him. And he's the one that's supposed to be getting the glory. We think that our life is about us. God, bless me. God, give me. God, use me. He's I would if you'd let me. (laughs) But you think this is about you. These people in Babylon and Persia, they thought it was about them. This is my life to live, not my life to give. God wanted them there because they were called to be a witness to the world. And then, when he comes, they're not there. Instead, he has to look for the lost sheep. So, there were consequences down the road for those who decided to stick around and cling to the world. While many did not recognize Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah when he came the first time, I want you to understand many more than you realize did. Many more than you realize did. We'll talk about that later. But Ezra, going back to that, is a very important figure. And Ezra, in the time period of Ezra, is going to change... Judaism forever. Up to this point, the Babylonian exile, we would say the Jews were what we would call practicing biblical Judaism. They just followed the Bible. That's it. It wasn't about Judaism. It was about the Bible. Ezra was a priest and a governor, a scribe, In chapter 7, verse 25 of Ezra, it shows that he was to set up a judicial system that was there for a good reason, to enforce the laws of God, to teach the laws of God to the people. It was their government. When we talk about government today, if you're like me, the, back, the hairs on the back of my head stand up a little bit. That's not the way it was before. You see, governing bodies back then were good and biblical. And that's what Ezra was, as he was establishing a form of government using the laws of God. It says this in Ezra 7.25, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess... Appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. You don't know the word of God? You don't know the laws of God? Here I am. I'm going to tell you. That was his goal. 
Because if you want a strong government, if you want justice to be established, you need to know the laws of God. The laws of God were given for your own good. Today, what has happened? Our government used to know the laws of God. And our government was even set up and established using the laws of God as their foundation. We talk about the Good Samaritan and uh, hospitals and all of that. I mean, you can watch... (coughs) (coughs) <coughs> sorry, um, David Barton and, and his son talking about this and how we look at our government was set up because of biblical laws. Now today, laws are gone, we don't need them, so we make up our own laws based upon morality and whatever else. But whose morality? Feelings of the day. But you see, this is how it was intended to be set up at first. So, While this wasn't Ezra's fault, this is going to be where we see the foundation for where rabbinic Judaism is going to come about. It begins here. You're going to hear things like Talmudic Judaism. Talmudic Judaism is based on the Talmud. Now, I do not want you to get... And this is why I think this is important. We hear words like Torah, Talmud, Tanakh. What is that? Torah, just the word of God. It's, it, it, you could say the first five books of the Bible. That's it. That's Torah. Nobody should have a problem with Torah. Tanakh. We'll get to that in a moment. The next slide, actually. It's just the Bible. Nobody should have a problem with the Tanakh. The Talmud, on the other hand, the Talmud you should have some problems with. Because the Talmud is basically really commentary on the scriptures. And I'll I'll explain that a little bit more. But Talmudic Judaism then, rather than biblical Judaism making the Bible your guide for all of your rules and your government, Talmudic Judaism makes the Talmud the guide for your government and your belief systems. Okay? And so... Where the Talmud came about was to answer these difficult questions. Well, God told us to keep the Sabbath. Okay, that's great, but what does that mean? What does it mean to do no work on the Sabbath? Even in whole Bible teaching like what we do here, we have questions like that. Well, is it okay if I do this on the Sabbath? Is it okay if I do that on the Sabbath? And that is the beginning and the roots then of these extra rules, rather than understanding that the Sabbath was made for you. You're not made for the Sabbath. You're not, you know, the Sabbath doesn't need you. If you decide to go wash your car on the Sabbath, the Sabbath isn't hurt by that. You're the one that's missing out. But we've kind of made it almost like this thing where it's about us. And this is where legalism then begins to creep in. Because we start adding these rules or build a fence around the law itself. And so Ezra is kind of the beginning of this fence building. Because they not only taught the laws of God, but then came up with this Talmudic Judaism that will come out of that later. 
So during the time of Ezra, we had what were called the Sepharim that are coming about. They are the scribes. And the Bible was divided up into three parts. The Torah, the first five books of Moses. The Nevaim, which are simply the prophets. And the Ketuvim, which are simply the other writings of histories, Psalms, and so on. The Proverbs and the book of Daniel is put in there as well. And so when we say the word Tanakh, it is coming from those three things. The Torah, the Nevaim, and the Ketuvim. T-N-K, Tanakh. So Tanakh is just another word, or Hebrew word for the Bible. Same Bible you and I have outside of at this time, they did not have the New Testament writings. Our Bible, we now have that added in. Messianic Jews also have that added in. But keep in mind, the Tanakh, that word came about before the New Testament happened. Well, the Jews viewed the Torah, the first five um, books of the Bible, as more authoritative than the rest of Scripture. The problem became is Torah, to a modern-day Jew, has become not only the first five books of Moses, but also then the writings or the fences that have been built around it. These rabbinical writings, these people that they followed, that they considered. It's no different. I mean, Lutherans followed, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter what the Bible. Luther said this about the Bible. And so this is what the Bible means. Is it their version of the study Bible? Yeah, pretty much. It is their version of a study Bible. Actually, a same thought came to my mind earlier this week. Um, others will follow Calvin. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. What matters is what Calvin said, what the Bible said. Catholics doesn't matter what the Bible says. It matters what the Pope says the Bible says. Jews, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. It matters what the, the rabbi said the Bible said. That's the problem. And I've said many times this was the problem with modern-day Christianity and the Nicene Council. The Nicene Council in the 300s had a lot of good things that came out of it. As a matter of fact, they were meeting to combat heresy, which was a good thing. But what happened is, even to this day, churches don't believe what the Bible says. It matters what this council said about the Bible, what it says. Whether it be the Nicene Council or many other councils that are out there or creeds that are out there. And what happened is, in a sense, we kicked the Holy Spirit out of the Bible. You see, no longer does Scripture interpret Scripture, but what this group of people said, that's how we interpret Scripture. Now, again, I am not saying that these councils were bad or that there isn't even good teachings in them, but what I'm saying is when that becomes elevated... To the point of, well, I don't know, let me go see what, what Luther said about this. Then we, we might have a problem. If that's your go-to to go see what your church father says, rather than let me see where else in the Bible can I find this? Where is this coming from in the Bible? That's the problem. Is that helpful to be consistent? Question, in case you didn't hear it, how, how important is 
church history in us understanding that. I mean, a consistency of church history. In interpretation of the scriptures. In the interpretation of the, script, of the scriptures. I think it can be very valuable, but I think it can also become just like this. Especially when we study Jewish history, you're going to see, as we will, that from early on, there became an anti-Semitic attitude that was then used that as a means of interpreting Scripture, and that was passed on for generations upon generations, all the way through Luther, all the way up to today, and I think it is absolutely 100% wrong, and actually goes against what Scripture says in some cases. We'll give you some of those examples later, but it's kind of, I'm going to put it as the same thing, that there's value in church history. But you don't take church history as the gospel. You look at church history and you measure it according to the word of God. That the word has to become the foundation of interpreting church history because the church history was made up of fallible human beings. And that's the problem. We will screw any church up. You know, you probably all heard, you know, I found a perfect church, I joined wasn't perfect anymore. Okay. As soon as I joined it, it wasn't perfect anymore. The perfect church is the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking about Mormonism. <laughs> okay. The perfect church is Jesus, and Jesus only. The Word. During the 500s to 300s, it was a relatively peaceful time for the Jews. Now, this is the time period of, well, at least part of it, of silence from God. You know, there's about 400 years from the last, you know, Malachi till Jesus comes, where we have no writings, no prophets, no inspired word. We have history like Maccabees and things like that that are coming about. Um, during this time, though, there is what is called a nation of elders. And this is what they had instead of the Sanhedrin. Soon the Sanhedrin will be formed, but it was called the nation of elders before the Sanhedrin. Um, it's known as the time of the great assembly. And the great assembly had two different groups of people in it. The Gerousia, uh, which consisted of the priests and wealthy landowners, and then the high priests. And... The, the main high priest became known as the Nasi or the ruler, the prince. Jesus primarily comes as the high priest. But for now, just note that you've got these two main groups of people, and they are the ones that are establishing order and government, you might say. Well, the Greeks are going to come along then to take over the Persians. In 333 B.C., Alexander the Great comes. And I'm going to go over this quickly because we just talked about this when we went through the history of Hanukkah. Um, he just cleans house so quick and fast. Um, anyway, Alexander the Great, his way of conquering primarily was to Hellenize people. And that basically meant to force the Greek culture upon them. And not just force it, but hang a carrot in front of them to get them to, you know, hey, you know, look at these gymnasiums I'm going to build for you. Uh, basically appealed to the flesh. And 
We see even today many cults or other things like that, they will appeal to the flesh. Something that the flesh wants. There are a lot of churches that can really grow a really strong church based on legalism because you know what the flesh wants? Something to do. The flesh wants to do it you know, itself. We want to be able to do something. The idea of grace, that you can't do something to be saved, is so foreign to the flesh. That is something of the spirit. And so, in a lot of ways, that's just kind of a way, you know, it's a smart way to conquer. What do the people want? Give it to them. They'll follow you. Well, we know that Alexander the Great, he dies at a very young age, early on. His kingdom is actually divided up into four sections, but the three primary ones here. Um, and then Daniel 11 will kind of describe these groups warring uh, from about 320 to 180 B.C. And Israel is just kind of caught in the middle of all of this warring. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to go through all of the details of this, but I do want you just to remember that this time period of history we do have records of. We have some very interesting records from Josephus, from Usher, uh, talking about this from the Maccabees. So when you read about that in scripture, um, people often say, well, Hanukkah, you know, that's not in the Bible. Why do you celebrate it? As I mentioned before, well, it is in the Bible. As a matter of fact, what Daniel talked about in Daniel 11 is Hanukkah, the, the whole background of Hanukkah. And so when you study Hanukkah, you're actually studying the book of Daniel, as well as New Testament verses that, you know, Daniel was talking about. So while it isn't something God said, hey, you've got to do this, is there a benefit and a blessing to it? Absolutely, because you're going to learn about God. You're going to learn about what God was doing for his people and his faithfulness and what God is going to do. And so if it's something that's going to help me understand the scriptures more, then I want to, I want to do it. The Greeks, without going into all those details, where I want to bring this to is the very fact of the different ways that the Jew thinks compared to the different way that a Greek thinks. To a Jew, there was one God. To the Greeks, there were many gods. Already, you've got a very different mentality. Now, I wish that we even believed in many gods versus no God in our country. When I went to India and was speaking in India, the one thing that amazed me is when I was there, most of you probably heard this story, but when I was there, <clears throat> I get a call to go and speak at this college campus where some Nobel Prize winners came out of, and they're all excited to have this you know, white American come and speak on campus. It, it's a secular campus. I don't remember, two or 3,000 students, something like that. It wasn't like huge, but bottom line is they wanted me. And I was all nervous about what am I going to talk about because I had just been to where I saw Christian persecution live and well. It was in a family's home that the very week that I was there, they burned their home down when they were in it trying to kill them. 
And so I have to sneak into this village. I've got to wear a hoodie and just kind of disguise myself to even get there. And so I'm, I'm a little bit on edge. <laughs> and now this school wants me to come and speak. And I'm like, what, what am I supposed to say? What can I say? What can I not say? You know, I'm, I'm coming from an American thing where you got to be really careful of the words you say. Well, there were some things like that, but I get up there and I'm able to basically live out Mars Hill and I say, you guys believe in God? And they're all like, yeah. That's all I see is all these heads shaking, yeah. And it's so foreign because I'm coming from an American perspective of, you know, you either believe in God or you believe in nothing. But these guys believe in the wrong God. And I say, I want to tell you about a God who created everything that you see. And I started talking about creation and, and uh, uh, amazing animals and things like that. And when I'm done in my American mindset, I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to be in trouble now because the, the president gets up very abruptly. And I thought she was going to just like cut me off or say, you know, well, thank you very much, but don't come back. Instead, she shut the college down for the next three days closed it down so that they, they could all come and hear me speaking at this planetarium. Where would that happen in America? It wouldn't. would never happen. But you see, they're open to spirituality. In America, we're not open to spirituality. I don't care if it's God or you know, even Mormon or whatever. Ultimately, no. Unless it's atheism and that you are God. Yeah, you can get away with Mother Earth, perhaps. Yeah, some New Age stuff. But you see, the Greeks had this more of an Indian mentality. They were filled with wrong ideas. I wish there would have been a dozen of me to answer questions after at that planetarium because people were coming up and saying, tell me more about this God of the Bible. How do you know this God of the Bible is, is real? And all of these questions, but yet I could sit up in, my, in the morning in my little thing looking out and seeing people put lemons underneath their tires when they got out of the car because when they drive off, it, it scares off the this evil spirits. I mean, they all have wreaths of, of flowers on their vehicles and whatnot to scare off evil spirits or to worship their other gods. and They're gods everywhere. Everything was a god to them. I just had to show them, just like Paul was saying, you know, I walked around, I saw all these, you know, gods, these inscriptions, but I even found one to, to, you know, an unknown God. Let me tell you who he is. He's the God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords. You see, that's more of a Greek mindset. That's what we see in scripture with Nebuchadnezzar even. In Babylon, they had some of those same many God things, you know. In Daniel, in whom the spirit of the gods, plural, is. They could recognize that there were gods. In other cases, they would say, we don't want to fight Israel down in the plains because their god is the god of the plains or mountains or whatever it was. You know, Our gods are here. They believed in gods. That's not what America is anymore. We don't really accept spirituality. To a Greek... The gods fight like men. 
They're supermen. They're superheroes. I don't think it's an accident that superhero movies have become so popular in America today. Blending God and men. The flesh wants to be powerful. The flesh wants to be able to be in control. The flesh wants to be the hero. But to a Jew, man is made in the image of God, but we are subject to him. He has all glory, dominion, authority, and power. I kind of like superhero movies. I, I'll be honest. But there's something in my spirit that tells me these are not good. Because it is. It, it, it makes you think, man, if I had a superpower, what would it be? Invisibility, you know, stretchy arms, whatever it could be. I don't know, you know. But the bottom line is, do you know I do have a superpower? It's God inside me. The holiness of God. Prayer. It is the word in me. We are superheroes. But you see, I'm subject to his power. To a Jew, truth is received by revelation. By the word of God and revelation. I'll be honest, I have a more of a Greek mindset than a Jewish one when it comes to that most often. You see, to a Greek, truth is found only in reason and logic. This is why Paul had to go to Mars Hill where they would debate all day long about things. I'll bet it was what color the church carpet was and what it was supposed to be and you know whether or not you could wear jeans to Mars Hill or not. I'll bet there were all kinds of things. And they would debate about it. But when truth is received by revelation, it isn't that, you know, God can put something in your mind, give you a vision, give you a dream, and it contradicts scripture. But hey, it was a revelation, so I'm going with it. You see, when God gives revelation, it's going to line up with scripture. But nonetheless, we're going to show you, not today, but soon, I'm going to show you examples out of the Talmud where God was definitely trying to speak to these people through revelation. And they couldn't hear it because of a system that was built up, much like what we have today, that what, what the rabbi says is true. The rabbi will tell us what it means. But uh, you'll see it later, but nonetheless, you're going to see examples of what I mean by revelation later. Um, to a Jew, the center of man is the spirit. To the Greek, the center of man is the mind. Logic and reason again. Now, I think that there's a connection with the spirit and the mind from a Jewish perspective, but nonetheless, it, it's something spiritual, supernatural. To a Jew, we have absolutes, but to the Greek, truth is relative. What's true for you may not be true for me. To a Jew... That concrete substance is important. It is more objective. To a Greek, it's more subjective. 
What I mean by that is the Greeks were big into art and architecture. Basically, I think art is the best example. You know, the, the paint on the wall. Ha! Art! I think it's stupid. It's subjective. It's in the eyes of the beholder. Right? No. No. <laughs> Honestly, our education system has become much more Greek in that. Letting kids learn all these different ways, and we're going to take six weeks to teach a unit on one thing I could teach you in five minutes. Five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I gave you too many minutes. I could teach it in two minutes. The point being is, we used to teach kids facts. You memorize facts, concrete substance, because substance is important. Today, what do you think? How do you want to do the math? You can do it any way you want to do your math, as long as you come up with this, you know. It's more of a Greek philosophy. And so it's important for us to understand this, and we see this in Scripture even when Pilate goes and asks Jesus, what is truth? You see, to Pilate, truth was more subjective. Okay? To a Jew, that's a stupid question. <laughs> but to that Greek, it's all about logic and reason. And I think that we are Greek thinking in our society today. And early in the 1960s, we, I think, exploded more into that Eastern thinking in our education system. And uh, there was a man-centeredness not a spirit God-centeredness that came in there. We had our little, what were those bears called, Tara? What do you mean, what bears? Uh, the the self-esteem bears. I call them, we were called, they were called warm fuzzies. Warm fuzzies, or, or, you know, all kinds of things that we projected our self-esteem on there. Rather than having Christ-esteem, it was, it was man-centered. So all of these different kinds of things that were coming about, and it's only gotten worse and worse. But anyway, the Greeks, um, it attracts the wealthy because they have time on their hands to worry about things like that, to think all day long and ponder versus, you know, working, work six days and rest on the seventh. As I said, it was a great way to influence culture because you give the flesh what the flesh wants. In America, we are very much like these Greek-thinking people because we think we're equal. All of us can be like God, right? All of us have these goals. I'm not going to be an employee. I'm going to be the boss. Okay, nobody is content... With serving today, we all have to run the company. Down with authority. Down with the rich man. We all can be rich. We all should be wealthy. And if they've got more money than I do, they shouldn't have it. You know, why don't they give some to me? This selfish 
sick attitude. This culture sucks us in and it determines, makes us feel like it, we get to de decide what we deserve rather than God giving us what we don't deserve. Well, this permeates society. It grows and it grows and it's very attractive because the flesh wants what the flesh wants. By the 200s, then, we get the Septuagint being written. And the Septuagint was accepted especially by the educated Jews because it was Greek. Remember I said that they take Greek names, Jason, uh, Joshua becomes Jason, and all of these guys, they were taking on the culture. And if you want to fit in with the culture, well, you're going to read the Septuagint. Sounds familiar, especially anybody in education. This sounds familiar. I could give you story upon stories of roundabouts that I've gone with Christian universities, even Concordia University here in Seward, and just this battle that they have to, to fit in with the other academia. I won't go into the stories, but the Seleucids from the north had conquered everything that was under Israel by 200 BC, and this is when Antiochus Epiphanes begins to rule. Again, I'm not going to go through all the history of that. We did that at Hanukkah. In 175, he marches in uh, down to Egypt to conquer Egypt. Rome stops him. That's when he comes back, and then all literal hell breaks loose in Jerusalem, and we have this time period of um, you know, the abomination that causes desolation um, being pre-shadowed, foreshadowed. Um, you know, basically the stories of Hanukkah. And Jerusalem becomes really a Greek city. He defiles the temple, does all of those kind of things. Um, then, as you know, Mattathias, Maccabee, comes in. He revolts with the, the godly priests. And um, again, without going through all the details, the Maccabees come in in 164 BC. They cleanse the temple and they restore worship in Jerusalem. But they still have a lot of people who have Greek thinking ideas now. I mean, it's been, you know, a couple hundred years of culture influencing them. Look what's happened in our culture just, you know, in your lifetime influencing you. Well, these Maccabeans become known as the Hasmoneans. And they establish a religious school called Bet Midrash. Bet is house, Midrash study. So at that time, everyone had to go to Bet Midrash so that you could, well, deprogram, combat the Greek culture that you've grown up in. There are times I feel like the last 10, 15 years of my life, I've been in Bet Midrash, deprogramming what my culture has taught me. The teachers of Bet Midrash were called sages, and they are going to become very influential and later become the basis for what is Talmudic Judaism. We'll get to that later. But the goal of Bet Midrash was to apply Torah, God's laws, 
to everyday life. And the sages then would take these students and these students would follow them around wherever they went and would mimic and imitate everything that they did. Walk in their same footsteps and do everything. And this is the system and the mindset that the Jews had when Jesus comes. And this is why we see his disciples following him. And oftentimes these sages would go to people that and would say, come follow me. And they would go. Now normally these people that were in Bet Midrash and they'd study the scriptures and they knew the law of God and the brightest of the students, these sages would say, okay, why don't you come and follow me? And it was a great honor for them to follow this rabbi, this, this teacher, this sage. So when these uneducated fishermen, this rabbi comes and says, follow me, they're like, I'll bet they went home and says, guess what, Dad? A rabbi, a sage, he wants me to follow him. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is that that's the system that was there. We know that even in their writings, it talks about you know, how Jesus says, my yoke is easy. A yoke of a sage was the teaching, and you were supposed to follow the, the teachings of that sage. And... So you have all these different sages that are there that see the Torah in different ways. You might say it's like having different denominations today. You had the school of Hillel, the school of Gamliel, all these different schools that one thought it was okay to divorce your wife if she burned your toast. Another thought it was okay to divorce her only if she was unfaithful to you. So literally these different denominations of Judaism were there when Jesus comes. Well, up to the time of Antiochus, the Jews were pretty well in agreement on what the scriptures said. But now you're starting to get this, this Greek influence that had to be there and it was being combated. All of a sudden you started to get these divides, much like what we've seen in the United States. It used to be that you could go to a Lutheran church anywhere in the country and you were going to get the same teaching. You could go to a Catholic church and you were going to get the same teaching. You could go to a Baptist church, you were going to get the same teaching. Now, it makes no difference what the denomination is because I can find a Lutheran church that is like a Baptist church here and a Lutheran church is like a Catholic church there. There's no uniformity. No, they don't. Not even them. They're, they're more than most, but they don't even have the uniformity that they used to. And so this is kind of what was going on there. And they, became, they, they came up with this halacha, which is basically, it simply means way to walk or go. And these were rulings of how to interpret scripture. Halacha. We see this actually in the Bible, Jesus referring to halacha, where he says, Moses, uh, um, how is it worded? I'm trying to think where he says, Moses says this, but uh, you know, do not do what they teach you, but do what Moses said to do. It's in Matthew. I'm just, my brain's not calling it up. But the bottom line is, is the Pharisees said, this is what you're supposed to do because Moses said this. 
So they're still quoting Moses telling you what to do, but Jesus comes along and says, listen, don't do what they do. Don't do what they're telling you to do because this is how they interpret Moses doing it. Do what Moses did. And so that's an example of it in Scripture. By the early 100s, these religious parties then began to form. And these are the religious parties that you read about in Scripture, one of them being the Zedukim or the Sadducees in the Greek. So even when we read in Scripture that they were called Sadducees, you're seeing the Greek influence. The Zedukim, these were the priests in Israel, and they were the ones that formed the Sanhedrin. We read about the Sanhedrin in Scripture. They quickly Hellenized and believed in the written Torah only. So these Sadducees, I would say we are very good Sadducees in America. We were quickly Hellenized. We brought upon the culture, and they believed in the written Torah only. That's maybe where I would say we have parted a little bit, but it used to be like that. We were quickly Hellenized, but we believed in the word of God. Maybe go back to the 1950s, and that would be a good Sadducee. Hellenized, but you believe in the word. Some good, some bad. Some of the bad is they did not believe in the physical resurrection of the dead, which is why they were so sad, you see, as the joke goes. Yeah. I don't want to be a sad, you see. Anyway, so some good, they believed in the written Torah, but they rejected the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the spiritual as much. Then there was the perishim, which the Bible calls the Pharisees. The Pharisees mean separated ones in Greek. And by the way, this is also why our New Testament was written in Greek. That's why they're called Pharisees, Sadducees in Greek. You're seeing the very fact that our New Testament is in Greek, a a Greek culture influence in Jerusalem at that time. So the Pharisees, they strictly observed Torah, including the rabbinical rulings. Remember the halakha, man-made explanations, a fence built around the law. That is a Pharisee. So what happens is they could do everything right, follow the laws, I know the fence, keep inside my fence, but still not know God. Which is interesting because as we've talked about when we went through the book of Hebrews and other things, maybe even Galatians as well, what was the point of the law of God? So that you may know me, God says. The law was given in order not to you know, make life hard. The law was given in order for them to know God, to know his character, to know his qualities, to know God's logic and and the way he thinks. Well, instead, it did the opposite for them. When they added all of these rules... 
rule upon rule, do this, don't do that, it means this, it means that, it became to where you didn't even know God. You only knew the rules. And this is what I caution you guys about all the time in, in relation to whole Bible teaching and understanding, yes, the law of God is good as long as one uses it properly. When you start building a fence up around that law and saying, well, it's a Sabbath and it says that I can't light a fire, so I'm not going to warm my, my, I'm going to freeze my family today. I think you're missing the point. The physical law is good, but where is Jesus in it? Now, I'm not going to go through all the examples, but you, you see what I'm saying is, is that we can make the Sabbath be something that man was made for the Sabbath, rather than Sabbath being made for man. The point of it is don't work so you spend time and you're going to be with me, so you're going to be in my word, you're going to know me better. And whether the church accepts a Saturday or Sunday Sabbath doesn't matter. The church, even on a Sunday Sabbath, doesn't keep the Sabbath. There's football, there's going out to eat, there's all kinds of great things that you can do, you know, but, but you're not knowing. How are you getting to know the Lord more? How are you keeping it holy? So this is what I caution you about is that whole Bible teaching can very easily become pharisaical if you're not careful and you start building fences rather than looking for Jesus in the Torah, in those laws. An example, a homeless person wants money. Do you give him money? I don't know. I could make a fence and say, never give a homeless person money because they are just going to go and drink it. They're going to go buy alcohol. Right? So the rule is, don't give homeless people money. Or, you can, by revelation of God, the spirit of the law, sometimes it might be good to give that person money if you're listening to God. Because maybe... Yeah, he is going to go drink it, but the message you give him when he is is going to prick his conscience and, and that's going to lead to something else that's going to get him out of homelessness or whatever. So the Pharisees used logic and debate to find truth in Torah. They reasoned it out, every aspect of it. They forgot, they weren't thinking like Jews anymore through revelation of God, the Spirit of God speaking to them, they thought about logic and reason, and so here's a law, and now let's logic and reason it to death and build a fence. Again, just a word of caution. Rather than worrying about mixing good and bad, we worry about, can I wear clothing of, of cotton and, and, and polyester? No, don't wear polyester. No, Maybe a mix is good, I don't know. I'm just told polyester is bad. <laughs> Cannot wear... My favorite pants are polyester pants. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not. Anyway, point being is guard your heart in that. And, and we need to think like a Jew, not like a Greek, when it comes to the law of God. Formal religious parties, another one was the Essenes. The Essenes were basically like a Jewish hippie movement. They believed that all were corrupt, so they secluded themselves. You might think of them more like an Amish today. Okay, um, Much of their writings 
were eschatological, the revelation kind of stuff. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in an Essene community. Um, along the Dead Sea, some of us, we've gone to the Essene community there. Maybe John the Baptist, some say, may have lived there in this Essene community. They removed themselves from society. And it seems like you know, there's some good, but there's also some bad there because they're not fulfilling the mission that God called them to do, to be a light to the rest of the world. So they were like, well, the world is bad. We'll seclude ourselves and do right. Okay, But again, the mission... Holly. I, I saw this firsthand with the Amish. I was speaking in Montana in a little town called St. Ignatius. I come, I go to this little church, I get in there, and all of a sudden there's buggy after buggy after buggy of Amish people coming in. Pretty soon I've got 60, 70 Amish people in this church. It wasn't an Amish church, they just came to the church. And um, all of, then the bug, buggies are gone, and I got a church full of Amish people. And I spoke on creation philosophy in evangelism and then afterwards the buggies come pick them up they go and they're all gone so I decide I'm going to go to this Amish community and so I went there the next day to visit with them and so I went and talked to them and asked them you know what did they think and whatnot and you know what was so challenging he said it was very challenging to us because it's outreach it's about the mission that was the Essenes you see, they don't care about outreach. They care about just protecting me and my family. We can learn from that too. So, um, under the Maccabean rulership of 164 to 63 BC, um, Israel began to expand its territory. And almost to the extent that Solomon had. That's how much of a force they were at that time. And at this time, they begin to forcibly convert the masses to Judaism. As a result, you have a growth of this pharisaical mindset. Okay, of all the laws. Yes, Ezra, we've got rules for magistrates. We, we, the same system when the Greeks came, we've got it. But now, we've got to deprogram everybody, so we're going to really dig in. Israel even conquers the Decapolis, which is west of Jordan. By 76 BC, however, the Maccabeans are overtaken by another Jewish group. And then soon after that, the Romans come in and are going to take over them. So now you have the Romans coming in around 63 BC. And this is where I'm going to stop. Um, I'm not going to even go over this slide. But at 63 BC, the scepter departs from Judah. And that's going to bring us up to a system now that I, hopefully you're starting to understand prior to Jesus is when we get these Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees coming in this period of silence and the Zealots, which I didn't get to. But it's going to help you understand what's going on when Jesus comes more. Okay? So we're going to quit with that. All right, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we've discussed a lot of history here tonight, but history that causes us to reflect on your word and reflect on our own lives. I just ask that you help us to just kind of reflect on that, that we can see the good and the bad in, in all of these systems and see where things have gone wrong. I just pray that you will let us have eyes to see and ears to hear, to listen to your spirit, to guide us, that we would think 
because you created us to think. You created us to, to be like you in your image that we would listen to you in the way that you listen to your father and that we would be able to surrender all, not to live a life for us, but live a life for you. And God, I just ask that the Spirit speak to each and every one of us here to to prick our conscience on any of the things that may have uh, been pricked here tonight, that we would meditate upon these things, take them to you, look at them again, the Word of God, and just to, to be challenged. And so we just leave it in your hands. So thank you, Lord, for being here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.